Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Today on the show, it's the public celebrity drama that we can't seem to look away from. What we're seeing, though, is one of the most powerful, one of the richest women in the world unable to get her ex to stop texting her, to stop chasing after her, to stop harassing her. Yeah, that's US late night talk show host Trevor Noah. This week, talking about the very public feud between Kanye West and his ex-wife, Kim Kardashian. Kanye has been divulging some very personal information about their relationship online and just yesterday copped a 24-hour Instagram ban for violating Instagram's terms and conditions around bullying and harassment. It also is just like on a very fundamental level, like him forcing people to pay attention to him and like and like violating someone else's boundaries, often a woman's. We'll be chatting to US cultural commentator Spencer Kornhaber about what is going on with Kanye West. That is coming up in just a moment. But first, today's headlines with Annika Smethurst. The Ukraine's president has addressed the German parliament and now that follows him, of course, addressing US Congress in the past few days. Not all of you are noticing as if you are behind the wall, not the Berlin wall, but in the middle between freedom and non-freedom. And this wall is uh, getting stronger and stronger with every bomb dropped in our land, with every decision which is not taken, but uh, which can help. That's the translation there from the BBC. That was Vladimir Zelensky. He talked about a wall. He's echoing the former US President Ronald Reagan's appeal to Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the last Soviet leader, to tear down the Berlin Wall. Um, That's where that reference comes from. It's Zelensky's attempt to persuade German MPs to do everything possible to stop Russia's invasion. He was also quite critical of Europe's largest economy for pressing on with gas projects with Russia, which Germany has said are purely economic and not political. Mm, It's hard to justify things as purely economic in this current environment with what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Um, And speaking of, Russian shelling has continued around the country. In the latest atrocity, more than 20 people have been killed, 25 injured. This was when a Russian airstrike destroyed a school and a community centre in a town that was quite close to the northeast Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. Russia has denied their forces bombed a theatre in the southern port city of Mariupol where more than 1,000 people were understood to be taking refuge. Naturally, the Kiev regime immediately tried to lay the blame for everything that happened in Mariupol, in particular in the context of the bombing of the theatre on the Russian military, who allegedly dropped a bomb on it. Of course, this is a lie. The Russian armed forces do not bomb cities. So that was Russian Press Secretary Maria Zakharova there. Um, The translation, again, coming from the BBC, um, Ukraine is a very different side to this story, according to authorities there. The bomb shelter underneath the theatre where people had been sheltering um, has fortunately held. Rescuers are digging through the rubble, though, to try and uncover survivors and at this point, it's it's unknown just how many people have died. To national news, and the unemployment rate has dropped to an equal record low of just 4%. Now, the last time it was this low was in 2008, just before the global financial crisis. 
We're seeing female unemployment at 3.8%, again the lowest since May 1974, and the participation rate at 62.4%, again a historic high. An extraordinary set of economic numbers. Yes, that was the Minister for Employment, Stuart Robert there. So more than 77,000 people started a new job last month. There were also fewer people who were sick with Omicron and other illnesses. So that means that the number of hours worked has increased. The participation rate is now the highest it's ever been. So that means that there's more people than ever in a job or currently looking for a job. We do have to take these figures sometimes with a grain of salt because it might mean that people have multiple jobs. It might mean they're only working one day a week. There's all sorts of caveats around those figures. People can be still looking for more work, I guess. But look, among the states and territories, the ACT had the lowest jobless rate at 3%. Of the big states, New South Wales had the lowest with 3.7%, ahead of Victoria, Queensland and Western Australia, which all had a rate of between 4.1% and 4.3%. Yeah, so in slightly bad news for South Australia's LNP government, um, remember they're hoping to be re-elected this Saturday, the state clocked up the highest jobless rate comparatively, at 5%. Yeah, and it could be a weird election day over there on Saturday, Jan, because fears of COVID and also people wanting to just get out and vote early means that there'll be a record low people actually attending ballots and casting their votes on Saturday, which also has consequences for knowing the result. It means we could take days to see whether the current Premier, Stephen Marshall, will continue to stay in power or whether Labor's Peter Malinowskis is ready to take over and lead the state. Go forth and get those democracy sausages, South Australians. And the federal government uh, has rectified the discrepancy in disaster payments. So yesterday we brought you the story of a New South Wales Liberal MP quitting Parliament over what she saw as an unfair allocation of funds. Um, There were flood victims in the Labor seat of Richmond missing out on two extra payments that residents in the national seat of Page, just next door, were entitled to. That's now been rectified. This was a new categorisation that we created uh, that didn't have any any policy or procedure behind it. That was the Minister for Government Services, Linda Reynolds, there. $862 million in disaster payments has already been paid out to more than one million people in New South Wales and Queensland, but it's understood $1.4 billion in a New South Wales package is being tied up. Yeah, and those delays of the rollout of that particular package are being blamed on Scott Morrison's trip to WA. I think people would expect us to go through the proper assessment of the proposals. That was the Prime Minister there defending the tardiness. The package, jointly funded by New South Wales and the Commonwealth, was signed off by New South Wales late on Tuesday, but it needs to be signed off by the feds too, which hasn't happened yet. And Kimberly Kitching, the Labor senator who died suddenly last week at the age of 52, had told a Parliament-employed councillor that she was being bullied at work by Senate Labor colleagues. It's claimed the Victorian senator was being bullied, ostracised and isolated by the ALP's Senate leadership team, which comprises Penny Wong, Christina Keneally and Katie Gallagher. I'm not going to engage in the political commentary. Right, that audio there you heard was from Opposition Senate Leader uh, Penny Wong. It was not very clear there, but she said, I'm not going to engage in any commentary. And she also said that she wasn't aware of any claim of bullying 
made by Senator Kitching. Labor's Deputy Leader Richard Miles also refuted the claims following reports she had confided the behaviour in him. But Richard Miles did say the Labor Party will assess its internal culture. Now, earlier Senator Wong, who told reporters that Kimberly Kitching's death was tragic and shocking, made a decision to cancel a trip to a fundraiser she had planned to attend on the day of Kitching's funeral. She faced a little bit of criticism for that and she's decided to cancel the event and instead head to Melbourne for that memorial on Monday. All right, that's it for our headlines today. Annika, you're jumping out. Coming up, we're talking Kanye West. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. President Trump became a platform for White House guest Kanye West. This hat, it gives me, it gives me power in a way. When, when I run for president in 2024. My mom saved my life. My dad wanted to abort me. In a string of now deleted tweets, Kanye West claims his wife Kim Kardashian and her mom Kris Jenner were trying to lock him up. So many public outbursts, so much controversy, so many inexplicable moments. How are you even supposed to respond seeing or hearing that about Kanye's chaos? Like, is it a man having a mental breakdown in public or is this just part of a publicity machine? Or is it a bit of both? Yeah. Is is he somehow strategically managing this chaos in a way that he knows will tantalise us just before an album or a tour comes out. I'm kind of torn about this yeah. because I'm a fan of, well, I have been a fan of Kanye West and part of me is like, I think this is a man who is unwell, he's going through a mental breakdown. I don't know if we should be encouraging or even watching this. Like maybe the best thing to do is just ignore him and hope he gets help. Do you feel sorry for him? Yeah, but on a scale of people to feel sorry for in the world, like he's not high on my list. But yeah, you feel sorry for anyone that you think is not having a great time. He doesn't seem that happy. Mm. Yeah, this feels like it's a debate that's been raging for years and I'm sure kept many stoners up for many hours through the night (laughs) of like, is this strategy, is this marketing or is this a guy like seriously in decline? I, I sort of sit in the camp that this is pretty much marketing. Some of it's real. So you don't think we have any responsibility as viewers? Not really. No, he, he. I feel that he chooses to make himself the centre of attention, including his toughest moments. And so if that's a conscious choice, then I don't think we have that much responsibility. Mm, well, that's the debate, isn't it? Mm. And that's what we're going to be talking about on today's show with Spencer Kornhaber. He's a journalist with The Atlantic. He's written a, a really fabulous article called The Tragedy of Kanye West, and he joins us now. Welcome, Spencer. Hey, from recent low points in Kanye's story, what what do you find the most concerning? You know, I kind of have kept Kanye at somewhat of a distance on maybe in the last few years, but the moment that I guess recently shocked me and made me kind of stand up and pay attention, maybe not for good reasons, again, was on Instagram when he called out Kim Kardashian for featuring their daughter on TikTok. Mm. And he like wrote some message like, this is only my first divorce, so I don't know what to do. What do you guys think? How do, how do I stop my daughter from being on TikTok without my permission? Just for him to bring this parenting issue in front of millions of people and put his wife on blast for how she's raising their kid. To me, that felt like it was 
kind of crossing a new line to where, you know, Kanye and Kim had, had kind of presented this somewhat unified front over the years. There were cracks in the facade, but that to me seemed like really the end of the idea that this is like an amicable divorce or that um, they were on the same page and everything would be fine. Because once you start bringing your millions of fans into the divorce and asking them to kind of litigate who's raising your kid better and issues like that, it starts to feel very unsavory and and like dangerous territory. I mean, it feels like his recent behaviour, especially in terms of, you know, his family and talking about his children in such a personal way, it definitely feels, and this is from someone who, I'm like, I'm a fan of Kanye West. I've followed his career for a really Mm -hmm. long time, but it sort of feels like there's definitely a line that has been crossed, but also I kind of know that it's sort of the tip of the iceberg and there's been this sort of concerning or controversial behaviour that he's been engaging in for maybe the last four years. Yeah, I mean, it's the eternal question with Kanye. Has he changed or do we just kind of forget how he really is? You know, I mean, this is someone who very early in his career had that George Bush doesn't care about black people moment, interrupted a telephone and to say the most unexpected and uh, provocative thing he could. They've given them permission to go down and shoot us. George Bush doesn't care about black people. That was sort of seen as like a brave political stand, but in retrospect, it just was completely breaking rules and grabbing attention however he could. And it's like, how, how different is that from some of these recent behaviors. Yeah, and the Taylor um, Swift thing in 2009 when he took the mm-hmm. award off for the, mm-hmm. um, I believe it was the American Music Awards or it was an award ceremony. <laughs> she won the award and he snatched it out of her hand and, you know, said, I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce should have won this award. That was also a moment where it was like, oh, what's going on here? Yo, Taylor, I, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Yeah, I mean, and again, it, it's... um there was a way to see that as sort of like an artistic provocation, like a statement about like his place in the industry and like how, you know, maybe like how hip hop was being treated by major awards. But it also is just like on a very fundamental level, like him forcing people to pay attention to him and like, and like violating someone else's boundaries, often a woman's. He was uh, involuntarily hospitalized for psychiatric conditions in 2016. The call came in at 1.20 p.m. Medical emergency at a West Hollywood address. LAPD and fire department responding. According to TMZ, West was at his trainer's home, quote, acting erratically. It does seem like things are a little different and shakier after that, but um, it's sort of hard to hard to know. I guess we're talking about where the line is between theatre, potentially mm-hmm. strategized or improvised situations that he, he has a choice uh, and he's making a choice that is the most controversial, fascinating gut-wrenching thing that will get him attention and I will note that it often comes when he's about to promote something but we're talking about the line between Mm -hmm. that and when it gets genuinely ugly and I agree with you Spencer that it it feels like once you bring family and kids like children like Mm -hmm. imagine the perspective of his children how this will make them feel that's where it feels like whoa this is a real problem. Yeah I mean I agree that there's always that question of is this just a publicity stunt and the thing is, you know, he is all about kind of blurring these lines and, you know, he's always presented his personal life as part of his artistic spectacle and like kind of tried to argue that the things that he does in his own life, like have meaning for the world because of their you know, symbolic importance. And like, even if it's just like the clothes he's wearing or where he lives, like it's all so freighted with meaning and like, there's a reason people should pay attention in that way. This is not new. 
it's such a parlor game that we're playing as as members of the public. Yeah. Because, um, you know, we can't know. And he, he doesn't know. I don't think he knows. I like the way you put it. It's a, it's a parlor game. How do we even play it? Because there's a part of me that is, you know, looking at this and it's very entertaining and it's wild and you want to follow it and you want to share it and you want to, you know, talk about it with your mates or whatever. But then there's this other part of me that's like, ah, oh, something just does not feel right about engaging with this. Like, how are we supposed to react? That's a great question. We should probably ignore him. I mean, I, like that, that really is what probably should happen in a situation like this. I feel generally conflicted about that question. But um, yeah, if I was just a civilian, maybe I would just, I would advise ignoring it as much as possible unless you really are um, still standing him or something for whatever reason. What do you think of the documentary Genius that's just come out, which is, I guess, putting more of a spotlight on Kanye, particularly his early years, and it's directed by a guy who was um, deep in the Chicago scene, Cody Simmons, has been following him for 20 years, and it's more than five hours long, and it starts off, you know, with a really intimate portrayal of Kanye's rise from that Chicago scene as a, as a producer and then really stepping out as he moved to New York. Cody himself really questions where Kanye's ended up in the similar way to what we've just been doing. What do you make of the doco? This is sort of shaggier and it is what you said, more intimate. Basically, two of the three installments are all about like the first couple of years, really around the release of his very first album. And, you know, he has however many albums since then. Um, And then it sort of fast forwards to recent years and it doesn't editorialize too much about what's being portrayed, but you really get a very, very stark sense that like he was a, quite a different person when he was younger, but not that different. Like a lot of the same behaviors mm-hmm. and ways of speaking are still there, but mm-hmm. um, you know, deal was in the early years, you really see how much it was motivated by music and art, and he really did have something special there. But it doesn't seem like he has that ace in his pocket that he did in his early years, which was just his music. There's some truly like haunting scenes from the last couple of years there where the documentarians sometimes turn off the camera because it's getting like a little too difficult and voyeuristic to watch. Yeah, well, that's interesting. They're almost grappling with the same question we've been talking about, about how to react to his story Yeah, and his do you behavior. look away or do you, do, you, do you keep the camera on? Do you keep it pointed at him? So that's the thing. And he wants the camera on him. He's obviously welcomes this. Mm. He's had these guys in his life for 20 years, but it is just like the point at which, you know, he seems to be sort of ranting and yelling at people without really, no one can really understand why he's doing it. That's at least the impression you get. Yeah, I think the doco plays perfectly into his hands for that reason, that you, you get the beautiful mm-hmm. early stuff of the, the rise, but then it, it, it just plays straight into this core issue, this question that Kanye West puts in your mind of whether it's craziness or genius. Even when you see him, there's a scene where he's down in the Caribbean and he's talking to these rich property developers and he's just on this crazy rant. It's actually one of the points um, where Cody turns off the camera and you, you're watching him and the things he's saying, you're asking that same question all the way through. Is this genius or absolute madness? And that's, I guess, what he wants us to be wondering. There's an execution style that was performed on me post Taylor Swift, where they tie both arms, both legs to four horses. Boom! I had never captured this side of Kanye before and it just didn't feel right to keep filming. So I cut the camera off. He is trying to sort of reclaim or shift how people see people with mental health issues. You know, he's he's spoken a lot about not wanting to be discounted. He does not want people to be saying what we're saying. He does not want us to be saying, don't listen to him, he's crazy. 
That was Spencer Kornhaber, journalist with The Atlantic in the US. Funny hearing him say that we should probably all be ignoring Kanye West on a podcast about Kanye West talking to other people, (laughs) definitely not ignoring Kanye West. (laughs) I mean, what's the point of ignoring him? I don't really get that logic. Oh, I don't know. I think it's because I look back at something like Britney Spears in the 2000s, who was somebody that was clearly unwell, clearly having an awful time and everyone just made a spectacle out of it. And, you know, 10, 20 years later, you look back and you say, I think I was on the wrong side of history doing that. You feel a bit guilty? Yeah, I do. I feel really guilty. And I wish that I hadn't contributed to that machine by consuming, by sharing, Mm. by liking, by thinking it was funny, by tuning into all of the talk show hosts that were blasting her. And I wonder if in 20 years we look back at Kanye West and go, hmm, I was on the wrong side of history again. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I I think he's at a very different point of his career. He's like 20 years in, still so successful, still making number one albums. She was so young and so vulnerable, but I think it's a good question and it will still take many years to really know the answer. Many successful tours and albums in the meantime. All right, that is it for our Monday to Friday briefing. As always, the weekend briefing coming up in your ear holes this Saturday with Jamila Risby. Jam, who have you got? My interview this week is a guy called Sean Zepps. He is a podcaster and content creator. He is huge amongst the parents on Instagram and his podcast is with Listener. It's called Come Out Wherever You Are and Sean talks to famous queer Australians about their coming out stories. It is such an incredible listen but I was treated to the opportunity to get to know the man behind the podcast and to learn more about Sean himself, about his beautiful husband, Josh, and his passion for his gorgeous twins, Stella and Cooper. We talk reality TV, we talk drag queens, we talk postnatal depression and everything in between. There you go, Jam. Going deep with Sean Zepps for you this Saturday on The Weekend Briefing. That's it for our show. Catch you later, guys. Listener.